Good morning. My name is Claire, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm grateful to be sober and a proud member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd like to thank Dick and the uh, committee for inviting me to come and share this weekend with you. It's always a privilege to be asked to participate in any meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and for that I'm truly grateful. And I'd like to thank Joyce. Boy, you, you, you sent a perfect hostist. And uh, she's just been wonderful, and thank you, Joyce, for picking me up at the airport. And it's a wonderful thing about the privilege to do this. Um, we go into the airports, and, and since 9-11, of course, it's a little different. They no longer meet us at the uh, gate, at the terminal. Um, but I've never met an enemy in anywhere I've traveled. When I, I always see the smiling face, and we've never seen each other. Sometimes they get creative, and they bring a little sign, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't carry big books under our arm. We just carry it in our hearts. <laughs> and um, and it's just great. To, I love your state. This is a beautiful, beautiful state. And I get to talk here through the years and many years now in various uh, areas of Minnesota. And I get to talk in Texas a lot. I told somebody yesterday at lunch that um, I probably in one of my past lives lived here. Uh, in Texas, and I'm back making amends, probably. <laughs> Thank you for your hospitality. It's been wonderful to see friends like Esther, and you know, through the years I've gotten to, you know, they have, they have touched my soul in so many ways. If you're new here this morning, I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, in the big book, which is the basic text of our program, um, one of my favorite readings in the book is in the back of the book. It's called The Spiritual Experience. And at the end of that reading, it says, Contempt, Pride, or Investigation. Believe a man in everlasting ignorance. So I welcome you and hope you'll keep coming back. Uh, by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I, uh, I was a roaring whinette. <laughs> in Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, it, ex- it explains the insane things we sometimes continue to do to keep from doing step one, two, and three. And in that list of insanities, one of them says, we switched to natural wines. Man, I switched to ripple. Nah. That's not one of your natural wines. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I don't think a single grape was ever near that stuff. <laughs> I don't know if they, what they put in it, by, but by that time... You know, I was in a place in my life where I was literally doing a dance with death. Couldn't get drunk, couldn't stop drinking, and couldn't die. And I never dreamed from that first drink that I'd had, you know, 20-some years before I was at the end of my drinking, that that would ever happen to me. I, um, we tell our story in, in a general way, what it used to be like, what happened, what it's like today. And, and, and I, 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 was, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. And raised in a lovely family. I had six brothers and sisters, and my father was a Native American, a full blood in the Cherokee Nation, and um, lived on that. And he was born in uh, Cherokee, North Carolina, and I migrated to Georgia. Met my mom in Central Georgia, which is a little town called Bainbridge, and they were uh, born there. My brothers and sisters and. My dad decided, he was an entrepreneur, he was an artist, and he was very successful at what he did, and 
and he decided to move the family to Atlanta so we could all have a very good education, which is what they did. So I was born in Atlanta in Grady Hospital, um, uh, and I believe I'm one of the ones uh, that was born irritable, restless, and discontented. Right out of the chute, man. I, you know, I probably could have had a drinky poo uh, in the first grade. <laughs> it would have helped me get to the second grade, you know. I, it always helped me get to where I wanted to go at the time. And, and uh, uh, so I grew up there, and uh, I was always, we always talk about the feelings of, of being uh, less self-esteem, and, you know, I never felt worthy of anything, and I was... I always felt ugly and, you know, not a part of anything and all of it. I had these terrible fears. Uh, my brothers and sisters are, are not alcoholics and I grew up, I grew up in, uh, in, 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 at that time when in Georgia, in the entire South apparently, you know, uh, I never saw alcohol. It was, uh, it was illegal. It was really the Bible belt when I grew up there and it was, uh, and I had a lot of fear about my mother who was, uh, who was really involved in church, and I mean, you know, every time they cracked the door, it seemed like I was standing there, I don't know what for, I was, I, I, I got baptized against my wishes, uh, uh, you know, wash me of the sins, and I didn't know what, by nine years old, I don't know what kind of sins I committed, but it was probably real, real to them, but, uh, uh, you know, I had a lot of fears and fear of death and all those things. Um, when I was a senior in Booker T. Washington High School in Atlanta, I won an art scholarship that took me out of Atlanta. And I can remember I had no friends, and I was a loner. And I remember sitting on that segregated train as it left the terminal in, in, in Atlanta, waving my finger at Atlanta. <laughs> I had tried to make a lot of changes down there <laughs> long before Rosa Parks. And... Uh, uh, and, and I'm sitting there pouting and thinking, well, you know, I'll show them. That was always my attitude, I'll show them. Nobody even knew I was leaving town, you know, so. <laughs> but I remember that feeling that suddenly I was going to have some kind of freedom. I wouldn't have to go to that Baptist church, and I wouldn't have to listen to all this stuff all the time. And, and I just knew there was a whole new world out there for me. And uh, when I arrived in Boston, and my scholarship was to the Boston Museum School of Fine Arts. And that's where I was educated. And, and I walked in there. You know, I don't know about you, but, you know, two weeks into it, I looked around, and, and it, it, was, it was something wrong with this picture. And, you know, I was always looking for something more. And I always had that feeling of wanting to live on the edge, and I didn't know what that feeling was about. And a lot of, I look around this room, a lot of you probably are too young to remember this, but it was at the jazz age era, and um, and I loved music, and I loved the theater, and I was never allowed to take that in, in, at Booker T. Washington High School because it was the devil's work. And uh, But I remember that, you know, I, I had, as I said earlier, I hadn't seen alcohol ever. I didn't even know it was on the planet. I really didn't. So I got hooked up with this friend of mine, and we started hanging out in the movies, because I was more comfortable in dark movies and watching people live on the screen. <clears throat> had no idea what life was really about, but I watched them. And I, here I am, 19 years old, 18, 19 years old. I never had a date, was never allowed to wear makeup, was never allowed to participate with, you know, the, when, when I was in high school uh, with, with the other, you know, kids my age. 
And so I'm really fascinated by what I see up there. And so, you know, one night I was walking down the street. We were coming from the movies, this young friend of mine. And I heard this great music come out of the, out of the door as people walked out. And I said to her, just on the whim, I said, let's go in there and see what, you know, what they're doing in there. I heard the music. And I walk into this jazz club. And it was dimly lit in the aroma of the cigarettes and the booze and, and at the, down at the counter was, at the end of the bar was this rather portly lady and she's singing the blues and I remember my heart started pounding with excitement. And I really knew what that feeling, what that living on the edge feeling was. And, um, the, we sat on the stool, the bartender said, what are you gonna have to drink? And I didn't know, but in the movies they always talked about martinis. And I was about to commit my first hip slick cool act. <laughs> I leaned on that bar and I said, uh, we'll have a martini, honey. I said, and make it dry. I had no idea what a dry martini was. <laughs> True. He turns around, he puts these two lovely stem glasses up on the, on the, on the bar and, and it looked like lemonade. Now, you know, in the South, it's very hot in the summertime. My mom always had pictures of lemonade in the, in the, in the refrigerator. And, um, I looked at it. I didn't know you're supposed to sip drinks. I look up and down the bar and I just picked it up and I dumped it. And, uh, pig from the gate. <laughs> but I remember the way it made me feel. Dr. Silkworth says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And I walk out and they would dance, a little dance floor, and I'm standing there, still had the empty glass in my hand, and I'm standing there with a, now I've got a permanent smile. <laughs> and I'm standing on the edge of the dance floor and I'm watching these couples dance and I was fascinated that, you know, I'd had these mixed messages from my mom to stay away from men and I had no idea, but I, you know, all those fantasies came roaring forward and, and, and uh, that night I got myself some new friends. I call them colorful, but the big book calls them lower companions. <laughs> I hooked up right away with the pimps, the hookers, the madams, and the bad boys. And I learned how to walk the walk and talk the talk. And I didn't know that, you know, it was 20-some years later that uh, walking that walk and talking that talk, I was going to end up in South Central Los Angeles in the ghetto in a fetal fetal position, dying of alcoholism. But it was a wonderful time if you were ever going to start to drink. So there I was in those jazz clubs, and I got very friendly because you could walk into, you know, the mob owned all the jazz clubs in the East Coast in those days, and and you could walk into any uh, club, and there was the late, great legend, Billie Holiday. And I started, you know, powering around with her for a number of years, and there was, I can still remember Louis Armstrong up on the stage, and Duke Ellington and used to hang out with Dizzy Gillespie and it was a marvelous, marvelous time and, and I drank well. I'm, I'm a, I'm a real alcoholic though, but that kind is described in the book because I drank for years without getting into trouble. Didn't have hangovers, didn't do any of that. And, and I was a daily drinker and I was never a social drinker, but I was a heavy drinker for many, many years and met a nice young man on the bar one night. Uh, he was very handsome and I thought, wow, you know, I hadn't known anything about dating. And we started going together, and, and he didn't know much about drinking, came from a very nice family in Boston, and uh, we started to doing the dance together, together and uh, we loved it. He didn't know much about life. He just I probably was his first date, and he was my first date. So uh, we kind of went out there, and we stayed in that marriage for 25 years. It ended up very sick, 
And I realized in many inventories I took, that I did the fourth column on my relationship in that marriage and uh, for many years. Um, we had a little son. And by this time, I'm well into um, yeah, my drinking, and uh, I shoved him off on his grandparents to raise him. There's a paragraph in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous that describes the kind of practicing alcoholic I was when it says, selfishness and self-centeredness that we think is the root of our troubles. And it goes on in that paragraph to say we're driven people, and we're driven by a hundred forms of fear. Self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. And it nailed me. And I remember having to go visit him and his grandparents. And when they're growing up, they look at you with that look. And I could never, you know, I, I, you know, there comes a time when is, is there's a line with Dr. Silk which says, you know, we, we can't differentiate the difference between truth and the false. And I'm living a lie now because my lifestyle is out there. It really was a lifestyle. I've learned the difference between a lifestyle and a life. I've learned the life and what it means in, 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 in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, uh, I had to get out of his way. Look, you know, had, had him looking at me with that look and saying, but mom, you promised me the last time you were here, you know, you were going to take me to the park. And I'm too busy to do that. And, uh, but I'd send more toys and send them to more expensive t- camps and do all those things that I thought I could buy the love. But see, I know what love is in, in the streets. For, love is for sale. And I knew love from, from that area, but, but I didn't know about how to reach out and touch that little child growing up and saying, you know, well, but you don't understand. You know, and, 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 I, and I didn't understand either because I, I couldn't say to him, but when I take a drink, the drink takes me and then I give it to power because I can't stop drinking. And I get on back downtown Boston and get up on the stools and, you know, I, I, my drinking hour always started around what I call cocktail time. But something started to happen. I started to cross that line, you know, earlier and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, cocktail time started at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and then it got down to long lunches. Then it got down to 10 o'clock in the morning, and it got down to, you know, when you wake up. And uh, and I used to wake up like 6 o'clock and say, well, a.m. I said, well, you know, it's cocktail hour somewhere in the world. You know, time is ready. I might as well start now, you know. Um, I started getting restless uh, in that relationship, in that marriage. Uh, and I always was looking for some more. I was always greedy, you know, when the one of anything wasn't enough. And... And I'm sitting on the bar, this is truth, I'm sitting on a bar stool one night in an after-hours club, and, and I was talking to Billie Holiday, and she's telling me she cut a record, that and, that, and they didn't have studios, and they did, those days, they did it right in the clubs. And I, I had a fantasy about this man, he was going to be wonderful, and I used to call him Mr. Wonderful before I ever met him. And if you hang around the clubs in Boston, New York, Holland long enough, you know, they show up. And there he walked up, and I'll describe him. He had a black hat turned down all the way around. He had a blue top over, coat over his shoulders. And this dude was so cool, he couldn't get his arms through the sleeves, you know. <laughs> and um, he reached his hand in his pocket. He pulls out a, a roll of money. He peeled 10 $100 bills up there, and he spread it like a deck of cards. And, and he leaned over and closed one eye and said, spend it. Well, you know, I didn't believe in God, but... <laughs> I didn't believe in God, but he should answer my prayer on this one, because I wanted, I wanted him to be rich. And, but he turned out to be the head of the mafia, of the Boston family. And I learned what it was like to run with the mob. I remember what it was like with, with bodyguards and, and riding in a, in a the limousine of you guys in classic cars. It was an old Mercedes with the trunk and wide white wall ties. Totally in, getting into the second step, and, you know, I just... Uh, 
I, 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 you know, I just, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but I, I've always said that the God of my understanding today, from time to time, must have been trying to get my attention. My son is 10 years old now, and I'm still out there doing it. And there was something about that emptiness, that darkness inside. I couldn't fill it up. I couldn't fill it up with all the money from the mob and the gambling and the, and the hanging out and going to New York just for a drink and, and that lifestyle and Baccarat crystal glasses and the whole thing. And it just wasn't enough. That seemed to, see, to me that I felt something inside of me that needed more than just that. And we were on the, on the corner, when we were on the corner of, um, of the street at the stoplight on a Sunday morning. We'd just come back from New York from the opening of a famous club. And Billy Eckstein was the opening star. And I mean, it was so exciting. And I look out the window and, and, um, these young families about to cross the street and, and, uh, and I looked over my shoulder and I'd stopped visiting the sun because I just couldn't go through that guilt anymore. And it was like a voice said to me, Clara, something's wrong with your life. And I agreed. The problem was Boston. If I just get out of Boston, things would change. We moved to L.A. right, right straight out Route 66, right in L.A. It was going to be new. It was going to be a new experience. And I was going to be a better mom. We picked up that kid from, from uh, my little son from uh, the grandparents, put him in the back seat of the car. And, you know, he felt like a stranger back there. I didn't, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know how, you know, as his, here I was, his mother, and I didn't know what to even say to him. So we go out there, it's going to be different, and, um, and I, but I'm an alcoholic, and then my uh, late husband was, and, and he was, we both called up on, on, on the bar stool and started to dance all over again. Uh, we went into a small business. I, you know, I, I was reaching the age, the clubs were not so exciting anymore, and the wild parties. But um, we went into a small maintenance, property management maintenance business, and it got successful. And, and we were living the good life, and we had a wonderful, wonderful uh, living experience there. And, and we had two more children, and it got to be really just, um, uh, you know, very exciting. But then I crossed that line, whatever that invisible line is, I crossed it, because I began to lose it all. And I began to wake up in places like a County General downtown Los Angeles Hospital. You know, and it's not one of your favorite HMOs. And um, <laughs> with nervous interns patching me up and always putting me back out there. And I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I had no idea I was an alcoholic. I just knew something was wrong. And so we, um, I, I um, started losing it. Thank you, God, that you took away from me everything I wanted in order to give me what I needed came that time in my life when I needed to stop drinking. I needed to find a God of my understanding. And I just simply needed to stop dying. The kids are grown up. The son is about 18 now. And I'm in, in my, that husband and I, uh, you know, we were, this Friday night, thank you so much for Friday night. Uh, we were started to do um, that dance with, with, with weapons with each other. And we, and he walked up to me one day and he said, you know, after 24 years and we're both crazy and he said, uh, you know, either you're gonna kill me or I'm gonna kill you. And I don't want this to happen to us. And he left and I, and I, my whole, my attitude about always was screw you two, go. And, um, and was, but then they started to, um, take back everything. You know, the, 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 the banks foreclosed on, uh, all my equipment. I had all these employees and, and uh, the house was going. I remember my oldest sister, God rest her soul, was a nurse at Cedar Sinai Hospital in Beverly Hills. And she was on duty. And I remember walking over there one more time, save me. I was always at getting people out there to save me. 
you know, because I didn't know how to save myself. So, you know, take care of me. That was always my attitude. And I walked into that hospital, and I hope I'll never forget that moment. She looked at me. You know that look when people look at you that really love you? And it's not about love you get on the streets. And she said, I told her I needed some money to save. I needed two mortgage payments. And she looked at me and she said, you know, it pains us to watch you live the way you live. It's going to pain us even more to watch you die. And when she said that, I mean, I panicked. And she said, and we're not signing any more checks to get you out of trouble. She said, but I, I'm, I, we will pray for you. And I've come to believe in the power of prayer. Because I believe it was their prayers that got me off that floor that in, in, in the ghetto by the time living off food stamps and welfare uh, on April the 9th, 1974. So by the grace of God and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, 29 years, I guess seven months or eight months and some days. And it was their prayers that got me off the floor that morning. But I looked at her and I turned and I walked away. And I could see the tears in her eyes. And I go back and was standing in front of the house and... My son is 18, and, and, and he was very talented, and, and he was the one that I just never knew how to reach out and touch him, Did, didn't know how to do that. And the two younger ones, my daughter was eight at the time, she's the youngest, then my son, the next son was about 12. Was, and I had a friend, my last friend, we've been friends for 40 years and uh, now, and she's not an alcoholic, and she had been watching me, and she saw that I was going to crash, and she had put some money in an envelope and put it away, and I had just stored it away, forgotten all about it, and uh, and I went in my luggage, and there, there was this envelope, and I called this am, um, the uh, taxi, and I said, it was an address in there. She would arranged with some real estate agent to, you know, if I ever crash, I'd have some place to go. And I'm standing out, you know, there's always, I believe in angels today, and I believe in miracles, because I don't know, it was all pre pre-planned for me, I'm sure. And I'm standing there, and the oldest son is looking at me with tears in his eyes, and I guess his tears didn't run, because 18-year-old young men don't cry over drunken mothers, you know, who are beginning to wake up with strangers for the price of a, of a drink. And he said, I don't know who you are. And he said, wherever you're going, I'm not going with you, because I'm not going to watch you die. And the uh, same thing my sister had said, and he turned and he walked away out of my life uh, Three or four years, I was—he was about four, three or four years sober when he came back into my life. And I took the two younger ones standing there, and they're looking at me. They'd never lived like this. They'd always had the best from the grandparents and from my family, and we'd never lived like that. And I said to the cab driver, and when he came, I gave him this address, and and he and he said, "This is the ghetto." Well, I didn't know where the ghetto was in L.A. I I said, "Well," and we get in this this cab and. We drive in there and ran the heart of the ghetto. And I look up at this little place and I gave him the, paid him off and I had a key in there and I walk up in and I walk into this little dirty hole of a wall of one bedroom. And I drew the drapes and I, I guess I was doomed to die there and I bought myself a red wig so I wouldn't, nobody would recognize me down there and I used to get drunk and trim the bangs, you know. <laughs> Pride for welfare and well and and the food stamps and and uh put on my terror cloth I had a white terror cloth robe, we had wine stains all over it. And I used to come out of black house like ten, eleven o'clock at night night when my when my heart was just pounding like a drum. 
Sometimes it would beat so rapidly it would feel as if it was, as if it was going to explode with the pain. And I knew what I needed to do. I, I, I love bars and I love that, that empty laughter and I love that music. And I would get off the, you know, out of that chair and go to the nearest sleazy bar in that area. And I used to change bars, you know, depending on which one I got beat up, the last one was worse and I won't go over there anymore. And, and I would, and I would go and, you know, I'd call, I'd crawl upon that stool. Now, I don't know about you ladies, but I met a lot of out of work commercial airline pilots. <laughs> Once in a while, I'd run into a neurosurgeon sitting on the stool, all those geniuses. And we're all looking in the mirror, you know, in our fantasies, probably feeling like Eleanor Rigby, wondering where all those other lonely people were coming from. And listening to that, you know, to the chatter. Now, one night, I did meet one guy, I'll never forget him. He's a young guy, he's sitting on my left, and very attractive, and he turned to me. Now, we're sharing a, uh, uh, we're sharing a glass of 49 cent wine. I ended up having to pay for that 49 cent wine. And he turned to me and he introduced himself. He says, um, I'm a retired Lieutenant Kern from the United States Air Force, baby. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah. I was really impressed with him because he was about 24 years old. <laughs> and he's already retired. He said, yeah, he's nervous, dude. He kept looking up and down the bar. He said, he said yeah, he said, actually, I'm a U-2 pilot. So wow. He said, yeah, he said, I fly secret missions all over the world. I took a sip off that 49 cent glass of wine, and I said, I know you did. He said, because last night I flew over Russia. I said, I was with you on that trip, baby. Let me tell you about that one, son. So those are the kind of those are the kind of relationships I'm getting off the bar. You know, uh, bar stools. You know, in the vision for you, it says there's a little paragraph. It says some of us sought, some of us sought, sought at places looking for understanding, companionship, and approval. And I'm out there looking for love in the wrong places, and ending up in being dumped. Bars closing in L.A. at two o'clock in the morning, and I get dumped in front of that house so many times. Come out of blackouts in a fetal position in tall wet grass. Um, I remember how cold it was and how damp it was and how dark it was. It always seemed darkest right before dawn. And then in California, night birds come out in, in the summer in those tall palm trees and dogs traveled in that pa- in packs and in, in that area. In those days, they had metal trash cans on the sidewalk, and I'm, I'm, I'm making deals with God down in the grass. You know, my heart just pounding and, you know, you know, crying silent tears over broken dreams and unresolved relationships. And I'm watching the dogs looking for food. It's all about survival when you live under those conditions. And, it would take several of them to push them over the can over to the sidewalk and off the sidewalk. And I could still hear the lid rolling down the street. And the dogs barking and fighting each other over the garbage. And I'm saying, God, if you just get me out of this one. My favorite alcoholic prayer. Get me out of this. Get me off the ground this morning. You know, and, and in my consciousness, I could see those beautiful brown. My, my little daughter was so pretty. And, 
uh, Brian and I was, and I was just lying there in that grass and, and, and remember the promises. Um, she'd say things like to me, like, Mom, you, you always promise you're going to take, you come to the PTA meeting, but you'll get drunk. All my friends' parents come. How come you can't come? And I can't tell her this, what I just told you, because when I take a drink, the drink takes me and I give it the power. And I would take a, have to have a couple of drinks to, to get ready to go to the PTA meeting when I just never could get out the door. Um, I get up off the grass and get through the house, charge down the hall. I'm dying, physically, emotionally, spiritually dying. Charge down the hall, get into a, a, this dirty bathroom on my knees in front of the toilet bowl, you know, do a few chin-ups, you know, <laughs> sliding around trying to find a comfortable place to rest. And it would seem to me there would be times I'd throw up my very soul. Did you ever come out of a blackout and the room is spinning, you know, and there I'm trying to get, focus on something to stop the spin, and the two words that always greeted me was American Standard. And then, <laughs> get up, you know, child, get dressed, make the run, six o'clock in the morning, put on my shovel, my glasses, straighten up the wig, put on some stock by earrings, put on my bad leather jacket, turn up the collar, put on my tight jeans. My mode of transportation by this time was a pair of gold fuzzy house slippers and uh, charge down the steps and get down in front of the liquor store and, and lean on the door and wait for the man to come. On and on and on. Uh, I started still trying to be a party girl. And one morning, one of those times, I mean, the insanity was in rampant and I was on the street, uh, not... Too far from the one, you know. I had been beaten up. This one, I remember a guy with a with a pair of cow, cowboy boots on, and one leg was kicking me in the head, and my head was against the curb in the gutter. And I know about pain because he kicked me in my ribs and kicked them all out one at a time. And I know about pain, and I know that pain has no memory. I kept living the life so beautifully described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous as insanity as the jaywalker. I kept doing the insane things over and over again with my insane friends and always expected a different results. So they didn't have cell phones or any of that in those days, but when I came to, paramedics had me. People who are dedicated to save your life, help you save your life, when I, hey, I didn't want my life saved. You know, how many times did I sit in that overstuffed chair staring out of the window, watching the dawn come up and watching my life slip away? And, uh, and contemplate suicide only to learn that suicide is a final solution to temporary problems that I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, that I solved through the 12 steps of our recovery and honoring the traditions of this program and living by its principles. And there I am in this hospital. And this was my beginning to be my moment of truth. I, um, they, they took me into Daniel Freeman Hospital, which is on the edge of the ghetto. It's a Catholic hospital. And uh, there was the police at the foot of the bed. There was uh, the paramedics with equipment, you know, tubes up your nose and pumping your heart back together. And, you know, they might got me breathing again. And there were two nuns standing. You know, I'm Baptist, and there were two nuns standing uh, next to the bed, an older nun, probably a lady in the 60s, and a young nun that's, that's become my earth angel. She was in her early 20s with a white habit on. And I thought I'd died and gone to hell, and I couldn't figure out how these nuns got there. You know, I didn't know I was, I didn't know I was in a Catholic hospital. And 
Uh, usually it was county journal. Um, but the older nun wasn't thrilled with me at all. She had on horn rim glasses and this black habit, and she had her hands on the sleeves, and she's leaning over me, and she's saying to me, you tell the police, you tell the police who did that. I said, until this day, I stand here this morning, I don't know who it was. I never saw the, I, never, I just saw the foot. Um, and I told, I told the nun, buzz off. And she was furious. She just turned around, and she stormed out, and she stood in the door. When she stood in that door and turned around and looked back at me and shook her head sadly, something happened to me inside. I, 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 you know, I never heard of alcoholics and not. I, I didn't know that there was any place that you could go that you could stop drinking. I never wanted to stop drinking. I was too terrified. Uh, how do you live sober? That was my ba- In the back of my mind, I always suspected if I didn't drink so much, maybe all these things wouldn't be happening to me. Everybody left but the young nun. And uh, all I could see was her face, and her eyes were as blue as the heavens. She had a solution, and all my ribs, and they had put this two-and-a-half-inch white gauze right around my ribs to pull them back together. I had a brain concussion, and and I was bleeding out both my eyes, and she had a solution, and she was wiping the corners of my eyes. The young nun leaned over me and said, how did you ever... Let your life get into such a state. And I looked up at her and I had no idea. Certainly not alcohol. That was my lover, my confidant, my friend. It turned on me and it just didn't, it didn't work anymore. But I turned my head away and three days later that same young nun was assigned out of the two or three hundred nuns in that hospital. She, the same nun was assigned to, to dress me and I remember, I shall never forget her walking me to the front door of Daniel Freeman Hospital and putting her arms around me, the spiritual being that she is. I have come to believe we are all born spiritual beings and we search for life in our, in our, in our, in our, in our, in our path. Um, she put her arms around me and she said, try not to drink today, but I'm an alcoholic. And we talk about the insanity of the disease, of this disease. I shuffled off to the nearest liquor store. And I bought my last bottle of wine, shuffled to that house. The grandparents had moved out from Boston long ago, and, and my kids, the two, my two younger kids were living with them, uh, with her, with the parents, the grandparents, and I was in that house alone. I ended up, um, uh, coming out of that blackout that morning, as I described, in a field position on a dirty floor. Thank God there were nobody, no men in my, in that house, because the men in my life by that time, had faces and no names. And I, as, and all of my fair weather friends at Bill Wilson described them and, you know, and speaking of Bill Wilson, I, I believe that this program was divinely inspired. And when he talked about his fair weather friends, all of mine were dead of this disease. A lot of the great celebrities that, that I had hung out with, a lot of them had, had, had later died, um, you know, from alcoholism, not all of them, but, um, I was, uh, I was trying to, so hard to, to try to get myself together that morning when I came out of that blackout. I didn't know what had happened to me. But all I remember, and I hope I never forget, I've heard the old timers in meetings for many years around the Los Angeles, Los Angeles area say, if you forget that last drunk, you're apt to do it again. And I, want to, I don't want to ever forget that. Springing off that floor, screaming, to a God I didn't believe in that, I, that don't let me die. 
and I just can't live like this anymore. And I, I believe we, if what happened to me was a divine intervention. And that the Spirit of God must have kissed me gently and said, Child, get off the floor. You don't ever have to live like an animal again. And I stood in the floor just crying. And I called the same friend, my friend of all those years, and I said, I think I'm going to die if I, if I don't stop drinking. And uh, that was the truth. I cannot tell you how, how I felt and was relieved just admitting that I just can't do this anymore. I was just relieved with, this, with that feeling. And she told me, she said, there's a place called Alcoholics Anonymous. Why don't you call them? And I said, well, do they have a number? Who are they? And she said, I don't know, but they help each other stay sober. So I went to the phone, and I called the operator, and I said, is there a place called Alcoholics Anonymous? And she said, yes, dear. She said, I'll put you right through, and it's called Central Office. She must have been in the program, because she knew already. <laughs> and she said, it's called Central Office. And uh, a man said, good morning, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. May I help you? And and uh, I said, yes, my name is Claire, and I can't stop drinking. He said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, dear. He said, do you think you can go today without a drink? Nobody, I said, what? You know, I'm not so sure. You know, wait a minute here. I he said, just today, just try it today. Do you think you can do that? And I said, yeah, I think I can do that. Uh, so I started to talk to this man. You know, if you knew this morning, you know, it was a conversation with a stranger who gave me hope. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. It's about hope. And uh, he said, well, we go to meetings. And he started to explain to me. And uh, and I was just talking. I was running my mouth, man. I was telling him what he didn't ask for. You know, I was just, he's like the dam broke. And I started telling him, and he said, well, you, you go to the meeting. Here I am, got him on the phone. I just told you my story. I've got wine sores over my face now. I've got fluid on my joints. I can hardly walk. I can't wear shoes anymore. And I got him on the phone, and I say, do you have meetings in Beverly Hills? <laughs> he said, yes, we do, dear, but you go into the meeting in your neighborhood. I said, okay, I can do that. <laughs> he said, you go into the meeting in your neighborhood. I said, all right. So um, I started to get that dress that morning for my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't want to ever forget that. And uh, and uh, I didn't know about detoxing, and I didn't know about, you know, that my body started jerking, and I was looking in the closet on what to wear because I wanted to look good. I didn't know what you guys are about. So uh, I look in the, in the closet, and I, I'm 30 minutes looking at the only dress I got trying to make a decision. And... Uh, <laughs> The red velvet dress was too tight. I gained about 65 pounds over. Well, you know, food stamps, and the food you get with food stamps is not exactly gourmet food, you know. And so I'm, I pumped up about 65 pounds. And, and I got the wig out, and I brushed her up and put her on that head farm, you ladies know. And uh, I sprayed her and cut some, I cut some real bangs, you know. And uh, she looked wonderful sitting over there. And I'm, I'm around 12 o'clock. I just started to fall apart. And I decided to get out of the house to keep him going to the liquor store, which was three doors away from where I lived. And so I went on Woolworths, and I was just browsing around over there. And uh, I stole some eyelashes to wear to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and they come quite long, and I didn't know you're supposed to trim them down to size. <laughs> so I called my brother who worked for LAX, and he and he he worked the night shift. And I said, you know, I think I found a place for me and it's called Alcoholics Anonymous and they said they and the man on the phone told me they were going to help me stop drinking 
and I need a car to go to Atlanta. I lost my big Cadillac two years before I moved down there. And, and he said, he said, well, I, he said, well, I'll leave my car on my way home. And he said, and I'll bring a friend, and you keep the car as long as, as you want to use it. And I remember I was all dressed that night. Yeah, it was an eight o'clock meeting, seven o'clock. I'm in front of the mirror. Perspiration just pouring off of me. Now these eyelashes were the last attraction. Um, I was shaking so like a motor, you know, and uh, my body felt like things scratching on me. And I was going a whole day without a drink for the first time in over 22 years. And I've got the glue on the edge of the lash. You hold it, you know, and I'm shaking it, you know. And then I remember grabbing my elbow and waiting for an opportune moment. <laughs> then I slammed it in. One end is up here, one end is down here. I'm too tired to start all over. I lean in the mirror. I say, you are looking good. <laughs> and I went off to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I remember walking up to that church, and Scotty's about, Scotty has about 38 years now. He's a friend of mine. He was the greeter. And he, he and I walked in there, and he said, have a seat. He said, get yourself a cup of coffee. They had real coffee in those days. And, and I... um and I and I got the coffee and was shaking so badly I put it back and I went and sat on the first row by the end seat by the aisle, sitting on my hands and just bouncing like a like a motor. Perspiration just pouring off from, from under that wig and and my whole life they talk about you you know, your life flashing before the drowning person. And I was sitting there on my hands and shaking and my whole life, you know, flashed before me. And what I saw is that alcohol had stripped me of all human dignity, had stripped me of all moral values, all family values, and, and you know, the, 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 the loving Christian home that I'd been brought up in was gone. It was nothing there now. All I was was a shell of a, of a drunken woman, and I know the price I'd paid for that. Still afraid of death, you know, I, 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 they started the meeting, and, and the late Gail Wilson was a speaker. And she talked to that podium and she talked about herself and she talked about being lonely and, and being afraid. And I had never knew, heard another human being talk this way. All I heard out in those bars, you know, was get more, do more, and life is a ball of cherries. And I knew I was in the right place. And when they asked for the hands of the newcomer, I didn't raise my hand because I didn't know what a newcomer was. And the lady behind me touched me on my shoulder and said, raise your hands, honey, you're a newcomer. And at the coffee break, she walks up to me, and she, my sponsor, and she, she is my sponsor, and she put her arms around me, and, and she put my hand, her hands on my shoulders. She looked into my eyes, and looked into my, and looked, and I looked into hers, and it was like looking into the depths of her soul. And she said, "We love you, and if you want to stay sober, you keep coming back, and I'm going to be your sponsor." And as I stand here this morning, she's still my sponsor. All these years, you know, she's still my sponsor. Um, we started this incredible journey uh, in, in sobriety, and, uh, and then we got into the books. And, and I, I wasn't employable. And when I was six months sober, I had to get. And she told me to get a job. And my first job was as a waitress. I was a terrible waitress. I spilled a lot of coffee on people and had a bad attitude. Never, nobody, <laughs> nobody ever tipped me. And. Uh, I remember being in meetings, you know, one time, my sponsor and, and this old time, I came out of the back of the room, and when they said the amen, and, and he's passed on now, and I used to take my whole two, three to five minutes that we were allowed to share. Man, I took up all mine, all the time, whining, because people didn't tip me. And he came up, he put his arms around me, he said, Clara, please, come down off the cross. Um, 
He said, "Honey, we need the wood, you know." <laughs> and uh, you know, I and I and I got better at what I did, and I thanked the people who who hired me, and and my life got on. I made my amends to those kids, and I'm also a double winner because my member Al-Anon. At the end of my first year, my sponsors, you know, had sent me to Al-Anon uh, to to learn to be, in the big book. It talks about the family after. Um, my, that older son who wouldn't go to the ghetto with me had become, had gone into the entertainment field as an actor. And he was very, very successful, um, uh, in the, in the movie business and stage and television. And I was four years old before he came back from New York where he was working at ABC television. Uh, I started to see the promises come true. I got very active right in, right from the beginning because that's what my sponsor says, you know, you know, we get out of ourselves and help others. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. You know, being willing to go to any lens, and that's what you do. And so we, that's what we did. So I got sober about 20 other um, newcomers in that time. And um, out of the 25 died of um, natural causes, the other 15 of us are still sober. And um, you probably know Sean S. from, from Canada. I, I have two weeks more than Sean. I'll never let him forget that. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we got on, and I got into going on panels, and I still am very active in, in that area of, of service work. Uh, I've been on the board of directors of four um, recovery homes, and I'm on the board of one now. Um, we do the 12-step book studies, and we and we do a lot of uh, spiritual work in, in, on Skid Row. We've started meetings. My life was just wonderful. And uh, that son came, my daughter, my, that young daughter, the grandparents, so when I was five years sober, the promises coming true. Uh, that little daughter, I could never go to her um, uh, her PTA meeting, but uh, she became the first black professional ice skater with Dorothy Hamill's tour. You remember back when Dorothy Hamill was doing the ice capades? That next son, um, at 18, attempted suicide. He got into alcohol and drugs. And uh, he was living in my house, and I had gone back into the business that I had lost, which is what I do now. When I was three and a half years sober, I went back into have my own company, property management and maintenance. And um, he, I wasn't going to work all day and find him drunk on the sofa. And uh, that's where my Al-Anon sisters came in, and, and they helped me put him out. You know, it was painful. It was painful to take my key and say, you can't live here. You know, you, you can't drink and do drugs in my house. You're a threat to my sobriety. So, you, you know, I remember him standing. He was like 18 years, 17, 18 years old, standing on that front, out in that front, saying, but mom, what am I going to do? I said, you have your God and I have mine. You know, it's, it's out of my hands. And, you know, three days, three years, two years later, he attempted suicide and uh, ended up in Brockman Memorial Hospital down in Culver City. Um, came to Alcoholics Anonymous, was very active for several years, maybe 12 years. Uh, then he went out, you know, he just stopped going to meetings. He didn't drink or use, or, and he got successful in what he was doing. And, and you know, and he ended up, um, that's my gay son. And he ended up with AIDS and doing drugs. And, and he got sober again. He's out again. He's in again. Now he's in again, you know, for the last uh, nine months. And full-blown AIDS, cirrhosis of the liver, and hepatitis C. Pray for him, you know. But life goes on, and he's doing well now. The older son came back, um, and uh, we became good friends. And we talked, you know, there's always that time, you know, that time when we when we do the steps. 
that we went back over all the things that had happened, and I was told by my sponsor, you know, I can't go back and start, I can't change things. We just become a living amends on a daily basis, and that's how it had happened, and we got to be really good friends. Uh, I sponsored a young woman named um, Rita, who had been an intravenous drug user, and when she was eight years sober, she, the virus had developed into AIDS. And I remember going down to Hermosa Beach one Sunday morning and sitting across from her, and I'm still wrestling with, you know, the concept of death and dying. And I sat across the table from Rita, and I said, Rita, how do you feel about death? And she looked at me quietly, and she said, death is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss is dying inside while you're still alive. And I remember that pain of dying inside, sitting in the back of limousines. And I remember that just dying inside and in the empty laughter and the wild parties and not being available to help another human being in any way because I had a sense they did not know how. So my son came home after his contract was over at ABC. He was in the news anchor department with the news anchor. Someone was still there. And I won't talk, you know, like anonymity, but anyway, he was their assistant at the 6 o'clock news for years. And he, he started getting into cocaine and shooting cocaine at the era with Studio 54. Some of you probably have heard of Studio 54. And he got involved in that, in that fast lane and, you know, it was with drugs and, and he got scared and he knew I was an Alcoholics Anonymous and I'd been an example and he called me one night and he said, I'm afraid that I, I don't want to do this anymore and he, he his contract was over. We moved back to LA. Got married. Had a little. Uh, we had a, he had a little son. I, my little. My grandson is just a 17 last week, and and he's just an absolutely wonderful young man. And uh, the marriage didn't last. And he moved to San Francisco and was teaching theater arts at the college level, junior college level. And he called me one day, and this is in the in the late 80s. And he said, "Mom, I went to the doctor today," and he said. Um, they tell me I've got something called HIV. And in those days, that was a death warrant. And I remember that having that, pulling that phone away and doing what you've taught me to do. God grant me serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. And the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And that son, he was so handsome. And he said, he said, Mom, he said, I feel okay. You know, I don't know what to do. There's no medication or anything. But... He said, um, I, 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 uh, he said, I'll stay here in San Francisco and when I don't feel well enough to take care of myself, I'll come home. Nineteen months later, he called me and he said, Mom, I'm too sick to take care of myself and I'm coming home to die. That is not a message you want to hear from anyone, especially from your own children. Uh, he came home and I had a place for him. That's that little son I couldn't take to the park. But through the grace of God and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I had made my peace. I have learned that when I make my peace with you, I've made my peace with God. And I'd made that peace with him, and we'd become very good friends. And I set up a place for him because the doctors, nobody knew what to do. And so I spent almost the next 19 months, almost two years for, before, he went from 175 pounds to 99 pounds, and I turned my business over to um, my daughter, ran it with um, the people that worked for me. And, and I spent many, many hours with that son. And I want to tell you, if you haven't done those steps, do them. 
What I have learned that life is brief and it's very fragile. And the steps that we're designed to do now, they're not suggested to do whenever you feel like it. Because the peace will only come when you're willing to do the work. Um, we spent many hours and we shared many, many um, things about our past and all was forgiven and all was well. And then uh, he'd done some work for the Grateful Dead. Uh, he was very friendly with, he'd done some lyrics for them. And um, one of them heard he was dying of AIDS. And he wrote a, a special piece for him and put it on a little CD type. And we learned the words and it was his request. And I'm in, I sponsor a lot of women. My, the late um, Alabama Carruthers and all the old timers were there. And newcomers, if you, if you, if you, you, you never have to do it alone, as I said, and because they were all there for me and supported me. And it was at 10.15 on a, and on a Saturday morning. It was the day before the terrible earthquake in 1994. A rasping sound of death. He was gone. I remember picking up a pad, an illegal pad next to the table. I thought my heart would just explode. And I wrote God a letter, not a note. Dear God, thank you for taking him out of his pain and thank you for using me as a child to bring your child into this universe. And forgive me for any, any cause, any harm I caused in his life, young life. 39 years old. And, you know, I pray that his soul rode the wings of angels. As the souls of family members, lost five members of my family in five years. And, you know, it never occurred to me one day to drink. That's not the answer for me. And, and you know, and we go on with our lives. And uh, that other son, you know, I had dinner with him on uh, Thanksgiving, just the day before yesterday and uh, Thursday. And uh, he's doing well again. You know, he's, uh, he's told me since, um, Thanksgiving Day that he thinks he's found a place for him and he's going to take counseling. And he's going to, he's going to enter Glendale College uh, to take counseling to uh, alcoholic and drug addiction as a counselor. God works in the most mysterious way. And I want to tell you, and I, I, and I still get the chance because life is wonderful. And for me, the best is yet to come. And I get a chance to answer that phone call when, when wonderful men like Dick and ladies that call and say, will you come and share with us? I come to share my joy and my pain and to tell you that God is, is, is the essence of my life and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has saved it. And for you who are new, I hope you'll keep coming back and join us on the as I said, the high road to, you know, to, to your destiny. And thank you for your kindness, and thank you uh, for your hospitality, and thank you for my life. God bless. Thank you.